Wow. Thank you, Richard and choir, for leading us in that incredible song. What an important reminder that is for us as a church, that it is, in fact, sweet to trust in Jesus. And I think many of us sing that song without really thinking about the implications of it. Because, at least for me, often trusting Jesus and learning to trust Jesus is a very painful process. It's stretching, it's growing, it's challenging because his ways don't look like my ways. And ultimately I know it will be sweet, it will be good, it will be for my good, but in the meantime, it feels hard and difficult. And isn't this just what we see in scripture? Jeremiah 17, nine says it like this. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? It being deceitful means that it often seems good. Our heart's ways, the things that we want, the things that we desire often seem good to a man, but ultimately they won't profit us. Do you see how different this is than the message we hear from culture? The message of culture is this, follow your heart. If you want it, go for it. If it makes you feel good, it's good. It's your choice. You do what you want. Trust your heart. But here's what we actually see in Scripture in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Now, don't hear me saying this is me saying simply because you want something or because your heart desires something, that means it's bad. No, that's not true at all. Psalm 37, 4 says it like this. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, this isn't saying that God is going to give you every little thing that you want or have ever desired, but what it is saying is that over time, as you start to delight in the Lord, he will begin to birth within you new desires. You will start to long for things that are in accordance with him. You will start to care about the people that he cares about. But what I'm simply telling you today is it is incredibly dangerous to have our primary trust based upon our hearts when they are by nature deceitful. Trust in the Lord in his ways. And over time, your heart will start to look more like his, but even then we must still trust him more. Because at best, we are but a glimpse of him. So as we dive into scripture this morning, the challenge is this, to trust God's word and to trust that his ways are, in fact, ultimately sweeter than ours, even if we don't feel like they are. Why do I say all this? Because today's message is incredibly important. It's about something we all have very strong opinions about, and it's about one of the most essential, if not the most essential thing about the Christian life. It's about love. And today's message goes back to the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. And I think, generally speaking, as a church, we agree that as Christians, we're called to love people that our first response, as Jay Taylor always said, should be to love. Second response should be to love. Third, to love. Fourth, to love. But what does that mean? I asked some of our students this week uh, to list some things that they love, and I got a variety of different responses. The first one was God, which I thought was good. They also said that they love youth, that they love coffee, music, theater, dogs, chameleons. Obviously, we love these things in different ways. And I hope that all of us love God more than we love chameleons, even though, Maddie, chameleons are really cool. They are, yeah. So the question for today is, what is love? And we lose it in English translations, but actually in Greek, there are different words used in scripture for different types of love. And the love which we're referring to today is called agape love. And agape love is an unconditional love, a love that isn't based upon anything that someone did and isn't based upon whether or not they reciprocate. It is selfless by nature and was manifested in Christ incarnate coming to the world to die for sinners. 
That is what agape love looks like. And this is the verbiage used in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is why the commandment to love your neighbor being the second greatest commandment has to be understood in light of the first. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You must love God more than your neighbor, otherwise you're missing the point of both of those commandments. Many of you all know I'm uh, getting married soon, um, and I love the woman I am marrying a lot. Um, But when we first started dating, we had a very frank conversation with each other that no matter how much we grew to care about each other, we would always love Jesus more. Is that easy? No. (laughs) But as soon as someone becomes above your love for God, they become an idol to you. Loving God first, though, frees us to be able to love better and to love without strings attached, to love without regard of whether or not someone else reciprocates, to love with the other person's best intentions in mind. And unfortunately, culture's perception of love has a lot more to do with what they offer us. So with all of that in mind, let's dive into 1 Corinthians 13. But before we do, let's pray. Lord, thank you for showing us love that doesn't make sense. Open up our ears to hear your word. Open up our hearts to receive it. And open up our hands and feet and mouths to live it out and proclaim it into the world. Lord, use my words. I pray they're in accordance with yours. We love you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In honor of God's word, let's stand and read 1 Corinthians 13. It will be on the screens. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have... And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith hope and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, and if you'll say thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. You may take a seat. Um, Before we unpack these particular verses, um, I want to give you a little bit of context on the book of Corinthians. We're starting a new series on the book of First and Second Corinthians, and the book of Corinthians was a pastoral letter written by the Apostle Paul to a very spiritually troubled church. The overall letter has a large corrective tone to it, and that is very important for our understanding of this passage today. The, uh, First Corinthians has to deal with the relationship between Christians and surrounding pagan cultures, has to do with divisions within churches that shouldn't be there, the ordering of church sacraments like the Lord's Prayer. It also has to do with the use of spiritual gifts and issues of personal morality such as sex, marriage, celibacy, and as we're seeing today, love. It's also really important for us to understand that leading up into this passage, there is a strong implication that the Corinthian church and Paul had very different views of what it meant to be spiritual. For the Corinthian church, their view of spirituality was equated with having spiritual gifts. 
their favorite of which was speaking in tongues. In essence, if they grew to be, have spiritual gifts, that meant that they were really spiritual. But they would do this while lacking concern for others and for the ultimate good of the community, and ultimately, they lacked concern for the advancement of the kingdom. Paul, however, viewed the ultimate view of spirituality as being filled with the Holy Spirit of God, which was manifested by walking in love as an outflow of the overwhelming love of God. So, coming into this passage that we just read in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul just finished describing in chapter 12 the different spiritual gifts as different manifestations of the same Holy Spirit. And talking to the Corinthian church that no one part was particularly better than the other. But the gifts were, in fact, as we see in uh, verse 7, it says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, all of these gifts that they were given were meant to be used in love. And while Paul was concerned about their hierarchy of gifts and viewing some as being better than others, really he was more concerned about their view of what it means to follow Christ. Because in their twisted view of spirituality, they had actually lost sight of the gospel and its way of living. Because they got more concerned with developing their own spiritual knowledge than about walking in love for the ultimate advancement of the kingdom of God. While they were speaking in tongues, they would tolerate things like sexual immorality, greed, and idolatry, and would even destroy their brother simply for the sake of building him up. Don't we see that in churches today still? That arrogance often leads to people tearing people down for the sake of love. Another essential theme that we must pick on here is that Paul develops this idea throughout the book of Corinthians of love's goal being the edification of others. And we see this particularly in 1 Corinthians 8.1 where it says that knowledge, meaning spiritual knowledge, puffs up, but love builds up. In other words, when thinking about what is loving, we have to think about what is good for the community. What is ultimately best for others? And this passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, is often read at weddings, um, and that's not wrong, but this passage is about a lot more than a romantic love. Remember, the type of verbiage used here is agape, which is an unconditional love, not a mere romantic love. And before we uh, dive into the particular verses, um, you can structure out this passage in kind of three different sections. The first three verses being the necessity of love, and then verses four through seven go to describe the character of love, and lastly, verses eight through 13 go to describe the permanence of love. So let's dive into verse one. Once again, it is really important to note um, that Paul begins this by listing off things that the Corinthian church thinks very highly of. That's why he uses the illustration of spiritual gifts, and that's particularly why he begins with speaking in tongues, because that was the Corinthian favorite. It was, in essence, as if Paul saying this um, was, you know, if you are as good and as spiritual as you possibly can be, but you're not actually loving people and you're not doing it for the good of the community, everything that you're doing is a waste of time. It just sounds like a noisy gong. And this was particularly significant because this instrument was actually used in pagan worship. It's as if Paul is telling them, yeah, sure, you might be doing that cool spiritual thing, but actually, ultimately, it makes you sound like you're a bunch of pagans. That's offensive. It's in essence saying you're wasting your time. Paul isn't saying here that spiritual gifts aren't good. He's just saying they are meant to be expressed within the context of love. The second thing to note from the first three verses of this is that the phrase to have love is very similar to the phrase to have the gift of prophecy. It means to act lovingly. To put it in terms like Bob Goff does, love does. Love is active. It steps in. The main gist of these verses is that agape love looks like loving 
others over your own self-interest. More than you getting some recognition for having some amazing spiritual gift, love's intention is to build up the community, to ultimately lead them to know Christ. Taking this in light of the first commandment means that if we really believe that God is our source of life, that he is the most amazing thing, and that he is the only reason that we live, then what is ultimately best for our communities is that they know Christ, and we should lay aside all of our things of preference for the sake of the kingdom of God. Because Jesus died for me, I will lay everything that I have away so that people might ultimately know Christ. Love isn't some abstract, ethereal concept that we just have feelings about. Love has a very concrete example with the person of Jesus. Coming to earth to die on the cross for our sins when we did absolutely nothing to deserve it. And even still, that we run away from him. That is the concrete example of love. That is what we are called to live out. And an understanding of what God did allows us to be able to more freely love our neighbor. Because our loving our neighbor is an outflow of God's agape love within us. Love is not passive. It steps in. Love incarnate stepped in with Jesus. That's what love does. And we see it in 1 John chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. And it says in verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Some translations use the word neighbor, which begs the question, who is my brother or who is my neighbor, which is a question that a lawyer asked Jesus in Luke chapter 10. And in essence, the person that he said was someone who you wouldn't expect, someone you didn't particularly like. So I think the question becomes more, who are you not called to love? Who is we as a church, who are we not called to lead towards Christ? If you can list one, we can't because Christ died for all of us. So if we're called to love our neighbor unconditionally, regardless of whether or not they love back, what does love in action like that look like? And we see this in verses four through seven. We see first that love is both patient and kind. In other words, it has both passive and active components to it, which is a direct reflection of God's heart because God withheld his wrath from us while we were still sinners. And still, even for those of us that are born again, he is incredibly patient with us. And he's also incredibly kind, and we see this through the gospel. We also see this through the very breath that we've been given to be here today. We see that through the family and friends that we have surrounding us. We see his kindness in a multitude of different ways. He has modeled it for us. So we are to be patient and kind. It's not easy. I'm not nearly as patient as Jesus. Look at my prayer life and you'll find that out really quickly. I also don't like being kind when I'm angry or when I've been hurt. Ask my brother and sisters down there. They will tell you that. I like being kind when people are kind back or when I know they're going to really appreciate it, but that's not the call. The call is to always be patient and to always be kind, regardless of whether or not someone reciprocates. That's the call. Next, the scripture goes on to give us ways not to behave if we are to walk in love. It's important to note here, the first five of these are particular kind of stabs at the Corinthian church of things that they were doing. It's as if Paul is telling them, hey, you might think you're really great and high and mighty and spiritual, but you're actually not really living like a Christian. First, it says that love does not envy, but instead love asks the question, how do I best serve my community for the ultimate advancement of the kingdom of God? 
We see this in churches all the time. When someone has a gift that looks different than you, if someone's a good worship leader, um, I can't lead a choir like Richard can. And it could be easy for me instead to sit back and think, man, I really wish I was as cool as Richard and could lead a choir like that. But the call instead is actually to rejoice in the giftings that God has given Richard because that is used for the ultimate advancement of the kingdom of God so that people might know Christ. But envy destroys that because that's not ultimately for the good. Love also does not boast, and the word that's used here literally means to be a windback. In other words, that you do things that are aimed purely at drawing attention to yourself. Once again, love cares about the good of the community as a whole, not your own prideful, sinful desires. Love also is not proud, which literally means to be puffed up or arrogant. The Corinthians had a really big problem of being arrogant, particularly in regards to the apostle calling them out on sin on things like sexual immorality, or greed, or tearing people down for the sake of tearing people down, or getting so caught up in preferences that they actually missed opportunities to share the gospel. Love is not proud. As Christians, that means that we are willing to be wrong because we understand that we follow the one who is right, and we conform ourselves to him. Love is also not rude, which means to behave shamefully or disgracefully disgracefully because Christian love cares too much about the good of the community to potentially prevent someone from getting to know the love of God by simply being rude. It's a waste of time. Love also does not insist on its own way. We are called to look out for the good of your others. The popular cultural narrative of finding yourself being the highest good is not the scriptural narrative. Love seeks the good of your neighbor and ultimately seeks the kingdom of God. Love also is not irritable or easily angered. You see, when you're filled with love and loving from an outflow of God's agape, unending love, you understand that you did nothing to deserve that love in the first place, and oftentimes you forsake the very love you've been given, and so when someone does the same to you, there's no reason to be angry because I've done the same thing so many times. And because your worth isn't found in whether or not someone reciprocates. Love also is not resentful. Some translations say love keeps no record of wrongs, and we see this um, exemplified in 2 Corinthians 5, 17-19 through the person of Jesus. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This also reflects the words that Jesus himself spoke on the cross, extending forgiveness to those who tortured, mocked, and ultimately crucified him, though he did no wrong. That's what love does. Love doesn't hold someone's dumb decisions over their head out of some picture of arrogance. Christ didn't do that for you. Who are you to do that to someone else? But instead, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. And this is a tough one to live out in accordance with that last one. Because while we are called not to hold people's wrongs over their head, we are also called not to rejoice in wrongdoing, but to rejoice in truth. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are, and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. 
That is what we as Christians are called to exemplify, to be radically truthful about who we are now in Christ and who we were apart from Christ, but still radically, un- radically committed to the Lord and also radically committed to the advancement of the kingdom of God because that's what God is committed to. We are called to be ministers of reconciliation. And as Christians, we're called to exemplify this into a broken and fallen world. We rejoice in behavior that exemplifies this. When forgiveness is shown, when kindness is shown, that's why we rejoice when people of all backgrounds are helping out with Hurricane Harvey. We rejoice because that is good. But we refuse to take delight in evil. Systematic oppression, violence, human trafficking, racism, gossiping, sexual immorality, gluttony, you name it, any sin. We refuse to take delight in it. But yet at the same time, we refuse to take delight when someone falls. Because love longs for mercy for all, even those who we might disagree with. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In other words, there is not a thing that love cannot face because we are so overwhelmed and touched as Christians by the love of God that it gives us the faith to walk trusting the Lord with the people that we love and hoping that he will show them mercy and that they will receive it. That is our confidence. Then in verses 8 through 13, goes on to describe the permanence of love. It begins by saying that love never ends. And the main gist of this section is that all these gifts and things that we strive for in life, the prophecies, the tongues, the spiritual knowledge that we strive to attain for is only for the present time. They're aimed at the good of the community and meant to be exemplified in love for the building up of Christ's church, but they won't be here forever. As I mentioned earlier, we're starting a new series on the book of Corinthians, and we're talking about being ambassadors or people or agents who are sent by a foreign entity, in our case, God, to accomplish the purpose of the person who sent them. You see, this earth here is not ultimately our home. This isn't where we ultimately belong. God calls us, though, while we are here being sent to be agents of love, and being agents of love starts with recognizing that we are agents who were formed by love, agents who are loved. Because when we start to recognize the overwhelming love of the Father, that is what propels us to be able to love others. If you think you know how to love someone without actually first love knowing the God who is love, you're fooling yourself. None of us have it all correct when it comes to how to love people, but we have to focus on the one who laid down his very son's life for us in order to understand what this concept of love is. And we're not meant to be able to completely understand this idea of this not being where we belong yet, because we only know in part of what's to come. That's what this passage is saying. And like a child acting like a child, it makes sense that we act like a child when we're children. But one day, When the perfect comes, we won't act like children anymore because we won't need to. One day, if we are found in Christ, we will live and there will be no more hurt, no more pain, no more sickness, no more systematic oppression, no more sin. And we will praise the name of our Father forevermore. That is what we long for. But we can't understand that completely and we're not meant to yet. And maybe today, you experience this element of not really belonging. And my hope and prayer is that this church, as, as much as it can be, a glimpse. I hope and pray that this church will be a glimpse to you of the belonging that you have and that you are offered in the family of God. 
and the belonging that one day you will ultimately experience because it is far greater than any of us can even begin to fathom. It's like looking in a dim mirror, like in Corinth where they were known for making bronze mirrors. The reflection is at best when we look at it, it's blurry. And even if it wasn't blurry, it's still just a reflection at best. But one day we will see in full, it's almost as if we now are just looking at a blurry photograph. But one day we will see our maker face to face and we will fully know as we have been fully known by God. You see, even faith and hope exist just for now. Because when the thing that we've hoped for arrives, we don't need them anymore. But love won't cease to exist because it's part of God's character. Love will never end. Love has always existed and looks toward the future and the ultimate betterment of the community. Love longs for the redemption of people. Love has an end game for those who are lost and dead in their sins to be redeemed by the blood of Christ and for all of us to be transformed to look more and more like him so that ultimately his glory will be proclaimed into all the earth. In closing, as Christians, because of the Holy Spirit within us, we long and exist to see the kingdom of God advanced into this lost and broken world for the ultimate praise and glory of our Father. We're called to strive to see this broken world reconciled to Christ just as we have been reconciled. We long to be ministers of reconciliation. We long to see hope for the hopeless, justice for the oppressed, rest for the weary, comfort for the depressed and brokenhearted, healing for the sick, parents for the fatherless, safety for victims of sexual trafficking, refuge for refugees. We long to see this broken world restored. That is what we long for. But love doesn't just long for these things. Love acts. And we long and live for God's saving grace to infiltrate the souls of our community here in this nation and ultimately in the world so that one day every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. That is what love's endgame is. Love isn't passive. It acts. Love looks like this. It looks like Sarah Moore, who in the midst of water damage in her own home, reached out to her Sunday school class this week to ask how she could help others who might be experiencing water damage. Love looks like Ron Landis and Jim Myers going over to Lee Ellen's house this week to help her out with water damage. Love looks like action. The reality is you won't always feel like being kind to the person who wronged you. You won't always feel like being patient when your kid's driving you up a wall or when you're stuck in traffic. But that's not the call. The call is to always be patient and kind. You always won't feel like you're longing for these things that I've mentioned. But here's, here's the challenge as we close tonight. Love with the end in mind. Love from a place knowing that you are far more loved than you can imagine and you did nothing to deserve it. Long for what's best for others, which we believe is Christ. The ways of the world won't satisfy, so love them in truth. God longs for them to thrive. We have to stop thinking about God's ways as being a buzzkill. They're not. They might feel like that, but his ways are ultimately far sweeter than ours. Our ways might be sweet for a moment, but his ways are sweet for eternity. We trust in that. The challenge is for us to care more about Jesus than we care about others. And in your relationships, to care more about that person's relationship with Jesus than you care about your relationship with them. To be willing to sacrifice your own personal advancement or even being liked or favored just for the sake of them coming to know Christ. That's what we exist for, so that people will know Jesus and make him known into the world. 
So strive. Strive to lead others and care for others' needs over your own, believing in Christ's power and hope that he will draw them in to know him. Because contrary to popular opinion, love does not start with you. It also doesn't end with the person you're loving. Love began with God and goes through whoever you are loving to ultimately lead them to know Christ. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end. He's who we trust, and he's the reason we love. You can't love until you know this love. So if you're here today and you have not ever experienced this overwhelming love of God, I will be right down front and I would love to talk to you about what that looks like because it is a love that changes everything about you. It is overwhelming that we can't even begin to understand and won't understand this side of eternity. But I hope maybe we can give you a glimpse. Um, And maybe for some of you today, as I found myself as I've been studying this this week, I've been really convicted about my own motivations behind doing things. I often love for the sake of other people liking me or even just making other people feel good. That's not what we're called to do. I am called ultimately to love so that people will know Christ. It's hard. So the challenge is even when you don't feel like doing it, think intentionally this week, how can I best love people for their ultimate good and their ultimate good is not you or them being puffed up or feeling good about themselves. Their ultimate good is that they will know Christ I'll be right down front if you need to talk.